Well, Shelly and I, we love the show Law and Order. It's been a little while since we've watched. Uh, we have some friends that love the show Sherlock. Do we have anybody else that enjoys Law and Order and Sherlock out there? Got a few? Yeah. Seems as though we love a good murder mystery. Well, 2,000 years ago, one of the most famous deaths of all time occurred. Of course, the death of, of Jesus on the cross. But the question is, who killed Jesus? A person could easily say the Jews or the Romans. But what I'd like to do is find a more specific answer this morning. Was it the Essenes, the sect famously known for the Dead Sea Scrolls? Maybe the Zealots? Or was it the crowd that welcomed him with palm branches as we celebrated last week with Palm Sunday? The Pharisees, they were always giving Jesus a hard time. How about the Sadducees? The Romans, Pontius Pilate. To help us better understand who put Jesus on the cross this morning, I'd like to give some background into first century Palestine. But before I do, I'd first like to look at Luke chapter 22 or 23, verse 44. I want to read about the final moments of Jesus on the cross. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be reading verses 44 through 47. And as we look at the word we talked a couple of weeks ago, that we should never take for granted the fact that we have the very words of God in our hand. When you look back to the early church, when you look back to synagogue worship, there may have been one Torah scroll per village. And now we have Bibles in our own homes, in our own hands, oftentimes many copies. So I invite you, just in reverence, to stand for the reading of God's word. I've asked Shelley if she would read the word this morning. So we're going to be in Luke. Chapter 23, verses 44 through 47. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when, the curtain, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. These are the very words of God. Amen. You may be seated. So who killed this innocent man? The only morally innocent being in all of human history murdered. To understand who killed Jesus, we need to know what groups were active around Jerusalem during the first century. And what you'll find is there were three main streams of Jewish piety. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You're pretty familiar with those if you're familiar with the New Testament. But there's also a group called the Essenes. The New Testament mentions the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and some of the writings of the New Testament were influenced by the Essenes. Within these three main groups, there were subgroups and movements, and we're going to talk about a couple of those. But here's the difference. The difference between these groups had to do with right practice. When you look at Christianity, we have different denominations based on right belief. Where Judaism, their differences relate to practice. And this is where these three streams of Jewish piety came from. So the first one I want to look at is the Essenes. They're the authors and collectors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, there was a monastic-type setting where some of them lived on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea. It's a beautiful setting, very hot. They referred to themselves simply as the community. 
They viewed everyone outside of their sect, including the rest of Israel, as having been led astray. So they were separatists. They divided the world into two camps, the sons of light, obviously themselves, and the sons of darkness. If you were to visit Israel and go to the Israel Museum, what you would find is they have a black marble kind of water fountain feature representing those sons of darkness, and then they have where you can move toward what looks like the containers the scrolls were kept in, and they're white, representing the sons of light. So they had this theology. They lived in every major village and town in the land. Some adopted a monastic life, while others did interact more with society. The more strict members removed themselves from society and lived in the desert, like the community in Qumran. They were very strict in matters of purity, ritually immersing three times a day. Their teachings were kept secret and not related to outsiders. In fact, a lot of it we didn't know until we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. They rejected the temple, considering the leadership godless and practices impure. This is important to understand. Since they removed themselves from the temple, they began referring to the community, basically this group of people, as the temple of the Lord and viewed prayer as equal to sacrifice. This is where you see some of those New Testament corollaries. They lived in community and held everything in common, very similar to the early church. And although pacifists, they were awaiting a day when they would rise up and strike down the sons of darkness. So that's the Essenes. You don't maybe haven't learned much about them. The other two groups you know a bit more about. So I want to talk about the Pharisees. Before the coming of Rome, this group held political influence and power. When Rome arrived and with the rise of Herod the Great, who the Pharisees opposed, the focus of the party shifted from the political arena primarily to one of religious practice. And this is how we know them in the New Testament. They became a broad movement based upon certain points of agreed consensus. This helped them win the support of the people. The first century historian Josephus, he relates the whole nation followed the Pharisees. I know we look down on the Pharisees oftentimes, but the Pharisees were well respected by the people because they were oftentimes the religious leaders. They exerted their influence through their position in the synagogues, in the villages throughout the land. In the synagogues, they taught the people their interpretations of the Torah, including their views on purity and daily practice. They had the written Torah, but they also had an oral tradition of it as well. They worked to understand a relevant application of the observance of the Torah to the current life situations of the people. That's not a lot different than what we do now. We look at a text in the Bible, and we want to understand what it meant to the original readers. We look at principles and, that we can draw out of that text, and we look at how we can apply it today. So, for example, you look at the Old Testament passage in the Scripture. It says you cannot boil a kid goat in its mother's milk. How do you apply that to modern-day living? Well, I can tell you what they did. They said you cannot put together meat and dairy. This is a big one for the kosher laws. So when you go visit a mall in Israel, they've got restaurants on one side, that's all meat, and restaurants on the other side, that's all dairy. So what that means in practical application is you've got to go order your hamburger here, and then you can walk over to this side and get that slice of cheese to slap it on there. Now, you've broken kosher laws, so when you go to Israel, don't tell them I told you to do that. <laughs> but that's what they do. So they take those scriptures. How do we apply those to life today? That's what the Pharisees were doing. They embraced Jewish redemptive hopes and believed in the bodily resurrection of the dead and the world to come. The two primary camps in the first century were those of Hillel and Shammai. If you've done any reading in the first century, those names would be familiar. 
Now we have the Hasidim. This group is really interesting. Within the broad stream of Pharisaic Judaism, so they were under the Pharisees, they existed a group known as the Hasidim, a group of pious, sometimes wonder-working individuals who found themselves in tension with the Pharisaic establishment. Hasid means pious, but they have no connection with modern-day Hasidic movement, which is a current Jewish movement. If you read Mark Batterson's book, Circle Maker, anybody read that, Circle Maker? It's a good book, good book on prayer. So when he talks about Honi the Circle Maker, he was a part of this group. He was part of the Hasidim. The group was referred to as the men of deeds and were known for working miracles. They healed the sick, they brought rain, and rescued people from various troubles. Now I want to pause here because there's a lot of people, if you've really not studied first century uh, life in Palestine, a lot of people think only Jesus was performing miracles at that time. But there actually were a couple of people that performed miracles. And I want to bring this up here because if you study this, that's caused some people to then begin to question, well, if other people were doing miracles, was Jesus the Son of God? Well, I'm here to tell you there's one miracle that occurred only in the life of Jesus, and we celebrate it here today. What is that? Resurrection. Resurrection. You scour history, nobody else rose from the dead. Jesus is it. He's the real thing. Now, because the Hasidim felt obliged to care for anyone in need, even those deemed ritually impure... They often came under the scrutiny of the Pharisees because they did not follow strict purity observances. I'm going to come back next week and talk a little bit about Jesus and the law. You know, Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, basically to live it out the way that God really intended. Where the Pharisees, when they would do these applications of the law, they basically put all these practices in place you had to follow, but that's really not what God intended. There was a different way to live, and Jesus came to model that. This is why Jesus sometimes was in contradiction with the Pharisees. Their focus on the needs of the individual over and above ritual purity, as well as their connection with working miracles, made them very popular with the public and influenced the faith of the people. They usually communicated with the public through story parables. Some of these things should sound familiar to you. The next one is the fourth philosophy, the Zealots, a group labeled as a fourth philosophy by Josephus. The Zealots were also affiliated with the Pharisees. But they were called the fourth philosophy because they seemed to stand on their own separate from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. They were a group of religious revolutionaries who believed it was unlawful to pay taxes to Rome. This is why sometimes the questions that would come up, we always knew there was a mixed crowd. Do we pay taxes to Rome? Uh, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. Foreign rule was viewed as unnatural in the eyes of God and man. The zealots did not look to the universal rule of God, they focused upon political and nationalistic dimensions of God's rule of his people and their liberation. The zealots hated the Sadducees, who saw them as collaborators with Rome. They believed that if they began the fight against the uncircumcised Romans, God would intervene and deliver them from their Roman oppressors. These are the zealots. And then the Sadducees, you're familiar with them? They controlled the temple and were connected to the high priestly families. Their position as high priests and rulers of the temple made them the ruling, wealthy, and aristocracy within the land of Israel, especially in Jerusalem. They exercised political power and influence upon the Jewish people and with the Romans. They were the primary contacts between the Jewish people and the Romans, which was a position that caused other religious sects and streams to view them as collaborators. Now, since they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, we see this in Acts 23.8. They accepted that a person received their reward in this life. 
Now, does that change the way you live when you think this is all you've got? Of course, and it did for the Sadducees. Their wealth led to many accusations of corruption and extortion. The Essenes, the Pharisees, and Jesus criticized their abuses of the power and their use of the temple. Mark 12 records Jesus sharing a parable of the noble landowner, also called the parable of the tenants, with the vineyard renters representing those in temple leadership. And here's what happens in this parable. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple and the expulsion of their priesthood as God's judgment for their corruption. This, of course, made him angry. We see in Mark 12, 12, the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. Uh, here's some pictures of the palatial homes. Let's see if I've got that. Yep. So if you go, there's, it's called the Wall Museum. This is underneath the Jewish Quarter in Jerusalem. And these homes were mansions, especially by the standards of first century. And this is where a lot of those priestly families lived. So they acquired a lot of wealth. So for them, Rome being there was advantageous for them to live a life of wealth. Now what about the Romans, especially Pontius Pilate? They were part of the crucifixion. History shows that Pontius Pilate had no regard for Jewish law, putting up images of the emperor throughout Jerusalem, something not done by previous governors. He incited hatred, brutally put down rebellious acts, Luke records an incident where Pilate murders people from Galilee while they're offering sacrifices in the temple. So often we look at Pilate as an innocent bystander in this whole crucifixion process, but he wasn't. He had ambition. He was described as harsh, greedy, and cruel. Now with all this as our background, I want to turn our attention to who killed Jesus. To understand who killed him, we need to examine the events surrounding the crucifixion. So reading from Luke 22 says, Passover was approaching, the leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money, so they agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Who was seeking to kill Jesus? Who did Jesus go to meet with or Judas go to meet with? The temple leadership, the chief priests, the Sadducees. As we look at the events, we see in Luke 22 too that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to kill Jesus. Judas meets with them to betray Jesus. Judas (coughs) leads them to Jesus where Peter cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. You're familiar with the story, the passage, the narrative. Jesus stays the night locked up in the high priest's house. Jesus is put on trial by some of the chief priests and the scribes. They bring him to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod and Pilate become friends, political allies. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, who's ready to release him, but the temple leadership wants Jesus crucified. A great multitude of people mourn and lament as Jesus is led to Golgotha. So when you look at that passage, that timeline... Did the Essenes kill Jesus? No. Did the Zealots kill Jesus? Did the Pharisees kill Jesus? No. Did the multitude who welcomed Jesus with palm branches kill Jesus? No. They mourned his loss. So then who killed Jesus? As we look at the New Testament, it lays out that the people who handed Jesus over to Pilate were the chief priests, their scribes, the Sadducees, led by the high priest Caiaphas because they were looking for their treasure in this life and didn't want it taken from them. 
the Jewish collaborators, the ones who financially benefited from their political relationship with Rome, the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection and were looking for their reward in this life, the ones not awaiting the Messiah, the greed of a small group who needed the cloak of darkness to cover up their activities from the sight of the multitudes and used their power to ensure his death. The temple leadership felt threatened by Jesus. They had a desire to retain their power and wealth. In the week leading up to the cross, Jesus speaks boldly against them. Clearing the temple area where Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship. This is where Jesus flips over the money changers' tables. Jesus and his supporters, they take over the 35-acre complex, not allowing people to pass through. And the temple leadership asks by what authority Jesus does these things, and he goes on to relate a parable where a vineyard is taken from the renters and given to others. A message that the temple would be taken from the current leadership and given to others. The chief priests and scribes take Jesus to Pilate, collaborate, and they have him condemned to death. But of course, that's not the end of the story. To understand who killed Jesus, we need to know who Jesus is. We celebrated water baptism a couple of weeks ago, and we do this because Jesus modeled it for us. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit rests on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven declares, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was God's beloved Son. But why did God send him? John 3.16 relates, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world so that we could live with him forever. But how did Jesus create a way for this to happen? John the baptizer in the beginning of the Gospel of John gives some clues when he declares of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does Jesus, the Lamb of God, take away the sin of the world? By dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus was your substitute. He was my substitute. The story begins with Adam and Eve, who listened to the voice of the devil instead of God. They disobeyed, and mankind's perfect relationship with God was broken. They became the first to experience sin and the death sin causes. They tried to hide themselves with tree leaves to cover their shame, but God was not pleased with these coverings. He covered them instead with animal skin garments. God himself made the first animal sacrifice to cover their shame. Adam and Eve had two children, Cain and Abel. Cain made an offering from the food he had grown, while Abel offered an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. Why? Because sin demands death, separates us from God, and must be paid for with life. In Cain's jealousy, he killed Abel and led a large portion of humanity down a dark path. Hundreds of years later, things had gotten so bad that God said there was no one on earth that deserved to live. No one except Noah and his family. God called Noah to build a boat, a big one and in doing so, preach this message. Judgment for sin is coming, and there is only one way to escape and receive the mercy of God, the ark. They laughed and ridiculed Noah until rain came from the sky and the water burst up from the deep while the people were unprepared. The flood killed every man and animal, 
and the world perished for their sins. Only Noah, his family, and the animals God had brought to the ark were saved. Then came Abraham, the father of faith. God told him to take his son and sacrifice him on a mountain. Abraham was disturbed by this command, but he obeyed God. He proved his faith with action and took his son to Mount Moriah. But just as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, God stopped him and provided an animal to take his son's place. The animal redeemed, replaced, bought back his son. Blood for blood, life for life. 400 years passed, and God sent Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, didn't like this, so God punished him with ten plagues. For the final plague, God sent an angel of death to kill the firstborn son of every household, unless the people were commanded to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of the house. If the angel saw the blood, he knew the children inside had been redeemed by sacrifice. Both Jew or Egyptian, slave or free man, if they obeyed the command of God, their child would be saved. If not, that night it happened just as Moses prophesied, and a great weeping went up all over Egypt and any household that had refused God's mercy by sacrifice. Later, Moses gave the people the Torah, in which God prescribed a ritual for covering the sins of the people. The offender brought an animal sacrifice to the priest, laid his hands on its head, symbolizing that his own sin and shame was transferred to the animal. Then the animal was sacrificed, its blood spilt, his sin was covered. King David and the prophets followed the Torah given by Moses, but they wondered, can the blood of animals really cover the sins of a man, or are they signs and symbols pointing to the future? David prophesied of a coming one, a king, a messiah, a descendant of King David who would rule and reign in power, yet be a humble man with a heart of compassion. This messiah would be sinless, perfect, blameless, innocent. He would suffer and die and be a worthy sacrifice. He would become the great sacrifice. Jesus was born in a barn because nobody had room for him. Born of a virgin, born pure, a royal poor descendant of King David. Poor Palestinian shepherds and wealthy wise men from the east came to honor the child and testify that he was indeed the coming one, the Messiah whom the scriptures had promised. Jesus preached love, truth, peace, humility. He was a humble carpenter but a brilliant philosopher. He offended religious hypocrites who cared about rituals more than loving God. But he was loved by the poor, the humble, the repentant, the sinner. He healed the deaf, blind, deformed, and demon-possessed. He even raised dead men back to life again. A homeless man, a wandering teacher, a revolutionary calling lovers of God to live full lives. Jesus even called God his Father and showed mankind that the all-powerful loves you like a daddy. God wanted to relate to humans as his children, but there was a problem. They were still sinful and God is holy. Man's sin, starting with Adam, had separated the people from their God, and the Messiah knew what he had to do to bring them back. John the Baptist prophesied of Jesus, saying, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the Messiah, the Chosen One, chosen to become the great sacrifice. Having never sinned, he was holy, pure, perfect, and worthy to pay the price for sin. The innocent one in exchange for the guilty, the holy one in exchange for sinful people. 
did this for his father to pay the price for mankind's sin, to free them from their slavery to sin, and to restore to them what Adam had lost, a perfect relationship with God. Jesus died on the cross not because of the Jews nor the Romans, but by the hand of God, his Father. God sacrificed Jesus to fulfill what was written by the prophets, that he would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, yours and mine. But he didn't stop there. Three days later, God raised Jesus, the Messiah, from the dead as a promise to those who believe in him that they too will rise again to eternal life. After this, Jesus promised his disciples that he would return again, but this time as judge and king. The Messiah is God's gift to mankind, that they would not die in their sins and be separated from God, but by receiving his sacrifice, they could be restored back into a perfect relationship with him. But like any gift, it's not yours until you take it. Sin killed Jesus. The greed of Judas, the envy of priests, the ambition of Pilate. Their sin killed Jesus. Your sin killed Jesus. And mine as well. Your fingerprints were found on the scene. You were a part of the death and murder of Jesus. And so was I. The cross was something done for us, but we need to understand that the cross was something done by us. And yet God the Father planned it, Jesus' Son provided himself for it, and the Holy Spirit was there as well. The cross was no accident, it was required for you and I to be reconnected with our Creator. So this is how I'd like to close. Your fingerprints may be on the cross, but this act, this sacrifice, opened the door for you and I to have a personal relationship with God the Father, His Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Three days after our sin killed Jesus on the cross, he victoriously burst forth from the grave. Three days later, Jesus was resurrected. This is what we celebrate today on Resurrection Sunday. Sin and death were defeated, and you and I were granted access to eternity with God. And as the video shared, it's a free gift, but it is a choice. Jesus said, no one can come to God the Father without coming to him, Jesus, the Son. There is no other way. If you want to live eternally, you must choose Jesus. Do you realize that you put Jesus on the cross, that your sin separates you from God? But do you desire to be reconnected with your Creator and live forever with him? As we close, I'm gonna invite you to stand because we're gonna close in song, so feel free to stand. And as you're standing, I want to ask the question, if, if you're here today and you've made a decision to follow Jesus, the good news is your sin may have put him on the cross, but now you've put your trust and hope in him and you can live with him eternally. But if you're here today and have not made that decision to say yes to Jesus, to say, yes, God, I recognize I'm a sinner, that there's evil in my heart, but I know that through your blood on the cross, you can wash it free. I want to invite you to make a decision to follow Jesus today. So if you're here today, and you want to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to following him, to be reconnected with your creator, I just invite you to raise your hand today. If you're here today and want to make a decision to follow Jesus, I invite you to raise your hand. And we'll just take a moment to pray with you. If you're here today and maybe it's been a while that you have followed Jesus, you at one point made a decision to follow him, but you've not really lived that life, that 
Choosing to follow Jesus is more than just one decision. It's more than just a single prayer. It's a lifestyle. So maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I made that decision, but I need to recommit my life to him. I invite you to raise your hand here today and we'll pray with you that God would give you the strength required to follow in his footsteps. Anyone here today that wants to make that decision, feel free to raise your hand and I'll just pray with you today. And I'll say this, the lighting up here is such that sometimes I can't see every hand. So if you raise your hand today and you want to make that decision, I do invite you after we close and we dismiss, feel free to come down here to the altar and I'll pray with you. We'll get you a Bible to get you moving in, in the right direction as far as next steps and following Christ. But I invite you to stay standing. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer and the worship team is going to lead us in song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your death, for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus, we, we thank you for giving your life for us that we might be reconnected with God and live with you eternally. And God, we just pray that as we leave from this place that we would not take that sacrifice for granted, but Lord, that we would follow you and follow in your footsteps that we would give of our lives for others as well. Jesus, we commit our lives to you, to your purposes, to your plans. And God, we thank you for what it means to follow you and the purpose we can have in life through it. We just pray, Lord, be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.